As a continuation of the last extra spooky episode of The Zone of Truth, Griffin and I are joined in studio by the rest of the Hideous Laughter podcast to help us unpack the evil interlude party's recent trip to Nadal, recap our recent drunken disorderly Halloween bash, and slash through some more thrilling Halloween questions from our listeners. I'm your host, Steve, in studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in the zone of truth. And we're back. Yeah, we are, dude. You know it, man. We just got done with a whole lot of recording. Uh, HLP Spirits Week, dude. That's right. Seven days worth of action. Seven we, days of recording, man. We were recording Zone of Truths. We were recording the original fucking podcast. We were doing the evil interludes. We were playing Rune Lords. We didn't stop seven days. Drunk and discordily. Yeah. It was cap it all off. Crazy. It was a good time though. Oh yeah. I had a blast. I think, you know, if I, if I did this for a living, right. Mm -hmm. I feel like that would be, that would be a week, right. That'd be a hell of a week. Yeah. Seven days, whether or not you're doing it for a living would be a week. But on top of everyone else <laughs> working, <laughs> working full time on top of that. Yeah. That was a fucking hell of a week, man. Yeah. It was ridiculous. I live about 20 minutes away from you. So I was doing that commute every night. There's a bunch of road construction that's happening uh, at night on the highway. So you were double commuting. Right. You were commuting to work, commuting back to work, commuting to my house, commuting back to your house, commuting to work, commuting back. And those and those commutes back to my house at the end of the nights were double what they would normally be because of the extra construction. Well, so, I guess we all have to say thank you, Steve, for putting so much effort into let's the get a round of applause around the table. Yeah, that's what I'm talking for about. you. Huh? <laughs> uh, all right. So I think everybody knows by now we've got the whole crew here. But before we introduce those folks to this lowly podcast, Griffin, what are you drinking tonight? Dude, I am drinking a vodka water and. Zip fears. Mm. This time it is the fruit punch variety and it's doing me well. But okay. how about you, I'm mon glad, frere? I'm glad to hear it, uh, my ombre. Um, this, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Hermano, like Frere's brother. I'm getting there. Uh, this is a NZ Pills. <laughs> I'm fucking bombing. This is an NZ Pills from Wolverine State Brewing Company. This is from Michigan. I'm going to give this one a shot here. How is it? Oh, that's a tasty beer. Awesome. I wish I had a couple more of those in my fridge, but I don't. This is the only one. This is the life I got to lead. So without further ado, it's not just the two of us in studio tonight. We have a ton to talk about with all of that recording that we did this last week. And to help us get through all of that nonsense, we have not one, but three guests tonight. You know them. You love them. They're Brooks. They're Emily. They're Haley. Welcome to the show. The rest of the show. Well, hello, hello. I'm sure you can all hear my uh, glass. Oh, you're yeah. God you damn just, it, Brooks. Uh, yeah. Feel free to bring ice in a cup onto the podcast and then just shake it around. Just it's what I do hold normally. On. Just hold on. There's there's a bit of a reason, but 
Go on. No, no. Yeah, give us a reason, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, why would you uh, want to grace us with your ice cubes when we ban that from the regular podcast? Do you not respect the zone of truth? Nobody does, Steve. I know. Continue, Brooks. Well, uh, since you're asking, Steve, I am drinking just Jameson. And to be honest, I'm just going to be uh, having it straight and in about two forms because there is. Uh, well, it's quite watered down now, but just at two times. So well, you guys will all know, like after about 20 minutes, just expect Brooks to talk a little less. That's all. It's delicious. I love Jameson straight. All right. Um, speaking yeah, of straight. This, this be- <laughs> <laughs> what are your transitions? I don't know. I don't know anymore. You're not even supposed to give transitions on this show. Steve, I've I've transcended the HLP. I'm now in the zone of truth giving transitions. You've, you've achieved the God form. He's just glowing form. over here. That's what that's what a spirits week does. It gives me the that godly glow. We gotta we gotta reel it in here a little bit. Um, Haley, what are you drinking tonight for our listeners? I'm drinking the Dirty Mayor. Ew. I know, right? <laughs> wow. But it's actually, it's a, a, a ginger and cider. That'd make for a great transition, the Dirty Mayor, but I won't do it because it's, it's not my show. Sounds it's like my show. all the horrible transitions that's to because, me. That's because it always comes after me. Yeah, Brooks always <laughs> fucking softballs me the bad transitions. I always consider uh, HLP Nation to have one mayor, and that's Brooks. Um Speaking about dirty things that happened to that mayor, Emily, what are you drinking tonight? <laughs> Got it. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm drinking a Book of Nomad, which is a strawberry mochi cider. Mochi? Again, I'm very proud to be the mayor of HLP. I don't know how I got this title, but you're I not plan actually on- mayor. Just shut up. Yeah, you're a figurehead. You're, <laughs> okay, you're <laughs> okay <at> fine. <laughs> just for the transition. All right, folks. Well- it has been 10 months since we've recorded our last evil interlude. So now that we're able to bring it back because we hit our Patreon goal, I just thought it would be a good opportunity to get the whole group together to talk about this little homebrewy-esque adventure that Griffin threw together for all of us and the characters that we brought to it. So without further ado, I'm going to be straight with everybody. We do have a lot to talk about tonight. So I want to take all four of these new parts of the evil interlude one at a time together talk about what happened what made him special what changed and what's next but before you do that there's a certain thing you're forgetting what am i forgetting griffin that'd be (laughs) the sirenscape for this episode you're right griffin and i was waiting for that little plug and i will be playing (laughs) were you though (laughs) yep I will be playing the sound set music from Blaster Battle from Sirenscape. What I've learned if, is that if I'm not proactive on reminding him, I have to edit in post. So I'm trying to save myself some work. Mm-hmm. It's a team effort. <laughs> There's no I in team. So the first Evil Interlude episode that we recorded this past week was one called... That would be the dining. The dining. 
We wanted to make all of these special evolute, evil interlude episodes that dropped on Halloween to be plays off of different horror movies. So, of course, yeah, so we got The Shining. Yeah. Little play on The Shining. Um, this episode saw our crew getting back together after almost a year of hiatus to have a nice little dinner party and then set off on a new adventure. So, before we really drop into anything important... Griffin had our characters level up from level six to level seven before we got started. So is there anything super special about level seven with these characters that you guys want to talk about? One fun thing that Vivian gets at level seven is torturous transformation, which... Yeah, which we saw. Yep. It, it wasn't uh, super prominent uh, or very like effective in the episodes it was more i guess just for flavor and kind of character development but i thought it was really cool that she can make these kind of humanoid assistants out of animals yeah, badly I'm, through torturing I'm, them i'm sorry but. i killed your dogs in the first round of the first combat of the evil interlude but it would have been fun to see what they did i do love the flavor of that as a vivisectionist alchemist i think that's the only uh, the only alchemist archetype that gets something like that yeah, as far as I know, it's uh, it's a very cool and unique archetype that uh, diverges pretty pretty far from just a traditional alchemist, and you get a lot more roguey features yeah. to them. Uh, yeah, rogues like to cut apart dogs all the time, so <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. And Emily, you made me really happy here that you started playing around with that, because although my barbarian archetype gets hybrid form at fifth level. I never experimented with that until now where saw basically becomes a tiger, but his hands stay humanoid and he can talk and stuff. So we kind of eroded my poor performance of the character before. Yeah. Sorry listeners. As Dr. Viv gets to help saw, you know, control his rage and control how it develops. Um, And I think that the dog human hybrid, like weird torturous transformation also parallels nice and well with Dr. Viv has, has been pumping him full of hormones and chemicals and stuff. And now when he goes into combat, he keeps control of his arms. Yeah, Vivian definitely gained valuable information from that uh, interaction that she got to have with Saw. <laughs> Learned a lot. So, Vivian had the torturous transformation. I'm going to be honest with the people back home. This On my level up, there wasn't anything really exciting. I have DR1 slash hyphen. Yeah, so, so you, have, you have DR1. Against yeah, so basically I have like DR against almost everything, but it's not cool. It's not sexy. Like, ah, it, it reduced your damage by like two or three a couple times. Yeah, it's 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 certainly helpful, but it's not something super exciting. How about Haley Brooks? Did you have anything exciting at seventh level? I mean, nothing huge. It's another feat, another you know level four, and so for feats, you know. As a as a witch, I believe I just got another hex. Not, <laughs> more hex. More hexes. I'm not sure though. I can't remember. I got um, a fever, and I need more hexes. <laughs> I can't remember offhand, but I definitely got level four spells, which was fun. Nice. Same here. Nothing really that stood out to a point of where it, it made it 
a like groundbreaking. Was this your? Was this both of your fourth level spells level though? Was this a level you got access to fourth level spells? Yes. I think I think all ninth level casters progress at the same rate. So that I mean, yes, it's not a, a cool class feature, but that's definitely awesome. I mean that that was very helpful. I think in the in the combats we had, you guys getting new spells and being able to kind of use something more powerful. Oh yeah, I mean that always helps. It's but from uh, cool new fun things to talk about, it, it it falls short on what Vivian was able to. To get. Yeah, she definitely got a cool new class feature that's specific to her archetype. I get, I get that. When you're playing a full caster or something and you level up and it's exciting that you unlock a new level of spell casting, but it's not like a cool new ability, right? You've always been able to cast spells. It's just your spells are more powerful or you can pick new ones. Yeah, yeah. My, my only class feature I got was literally speak with animals, which isn't super fun. Just wait. Level 8 and level 12 is actually the super fun one for me. So Ooh. I'll be fun right, a little bit Make later. sure I keep you guys at 7 for a while. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we got some of the, the record-keeping stuff out of the way. But let's talk about our characters themselves. So we enter upon the scene where Viv and Ed are coming to have a little bit of a dinner party with Nana Opal and Saw. This is where we open our four evil interludes for this Halloween season. And Nana Opal has a goal for Saw for this evil interlude. And it's strange. And I want Haley to talk about it. (laughs) Because you brought this to me. Absolutely, and Steve. Oh, good. That answers my question. I was in the room, and I almost gagged a little bit. I know, I know. Um, yeah, so now Opal being a lady of manners, and that feels as though people should act proper, um, otherwise face consequences, feels as though Saw has not had enough proper and good polite experience with ladies. So he needs to know how to properly respect women. Unfortunately, Nana Opal also is a horrible, horrible person, and their method of teaching him is probably not not doing anything but more harm. No, really. <laughs> <laughs> but she, he has been so nice. Did you not hear how polite he was throughout all of those evil interludes? So polite. Little peek behind the curtain. There, it was either the night before or the. N- or two nights before uh, Haley Griffin and myself got together and we were chatting a little bit about what our characters had been doing over the last several months for this evil interlude. And Haley had that idea. And I, I agreed immediately. I thought it was so perfect for the characters. She need, uh, he needs a good woman. Like I thought, I thought that was perfect for where we left it off from that Christmas evil interlude. And, uh, I'm really excited to see where it goes. Yeah, sorry. I'm uh, not. It's I'm not. super weird, super creepy, and um, in the best way, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's exactly what Nana Oba would want for Saw. So, basically, I had like a night before we started recording to get an idea of what I wanted to do. So, I got in my head the idea of like the good night kiss. <laughs> 
That was horrific. <laughs> I loved it. Mm, I really wanted that to happen. That was sprung on me, listeners, and I almost gagged. I just like I kept thinking because I was playing the, the the other the the captured woman, and like that part just like oh that skeeved me out so much. Which you did great, by the way. I didn't know yeah. what you'd do because we just kind of threw this yeah, on you. You threw it at me, like most of you do with almost everything you do. <laughs> But yeah, you did great. And Steve, your goodnight kiss. <laughs> that like, oh god. Yeah. I, when we got done, I, I said I said I had two things planned. I had that because um, that's I, I feel like that's a very terrifying position to be caught in. Just this disgusting long lick up the side of your face. And then I also wanted to do a little play on the words that I threw out last evil interlude of sicknesses and season. I want to do a little chivalries and season. Yeah, I thought that I was fun. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I threw that out there and uh, well, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Also, Steve wanted to make it very, 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 very 100% clear that I'm the one who came up with this because he did not I... want it to come up back. Oh, really? You didn't want to be the guy oh. that came up with capturing... <laughs> Captured yeah, and women. Yes. Yeah, I'm not comfortable with that. I want to be very clear. But you're just comfortable with going along. Going with along it. with it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so that's kind of what our characters had been doing over the last several months. Uh, Doctor Viv and Mister Turner had also been up to a little bit of shenanigans before they met up with the other half of the party. They got back together with those folks, and what? Uh, were you guys excited to come back to the party? Were, have, have your characters substantially changed in the last year or so? I want to give uh, kudos at the top here because the way Viv described or the way Emily described Viv uh, developing over the past nine months was such a perfect synergy with, and again, I hope if you're listening to this, you're caught up on the regular campaign as well as the evil interlude, but it was such a great synergy with how Viv was inserted into the regular campaign that I just had to, I had the fucking kudos that because like, oh, she's, she's looking at getting employment in hospitals and mental institutes and blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's exactly where we find her. That was definitely my goal. I wanted to help bridge the gap between uh, Vivian in the Christmas Evil Interludes, where we're all together working as a great team, uh, to branch out to develop more of her her research further and kind of get ready to go out on her own. So I was definitely trying to help that transition so it's a little smoother. So was that a transition that you and Brooks talked about? Or was that something you brought to the table? Because I know your characters are are linked, per se, right? Yeah, it's kind of like Saw Nana Opal and Ed and Dr. Viv is kind of the way we've been playing it for the past couple of Evil Interludes. Yeah, we definitely talked about it, and it was actually a very quick decision that, yeah, I think we would, or our characters would go their separate ways and it would be very, very mutual between them based on what Ed Turner's goals were and what Viv's goals were. So it, it, it really did make sense, and it, it was talked over initially. Yeah, but they were still, at least at like 
during these nine months still kind of traveling together in contact at least. yeah like yeah. just okay. starting that uh kind of separation at break yeah that makes sense to me i i it, it seems like you guys communicated a little bit but uh although you guys entered the evil interludes initially at episode one as a pair you're both very much individual characters who have their own motivations so although like you guys are friends you have your own goals so mm-hmm. stay in contact but maybe you know are doing different things in this past year but we all get together we have a pleasant evening and then our friend Oren Vrood makes an appearance and he summons us for another adventure throw Anya in the back room <laughs> strap Anya in the back head out yep I actually, I I didn't bring it to this session, but I have a notebook where I keep certain things and I have to do some of Saw's mechanics on there because it doesn't quite line up with how my character runs on, um, on Hero Lab. But I I went back the other day just to look and I just have like scrolled because I had a couple beers and I was like having fun. I've scrolled in my notebook, Sandra slash through that, Martha slash through that, Anya (laughs) exclamation point. Yeah. Yeah. So so we talk to Oren Vrood. We make our way to Ilmarsh. Yep. Which our characters have been to before. And we talk with him about a mission. Griffin, how does this mission fit in with the overall Carrying Crown campaign? I actually and I'm I'm really sorry. I can't tell you that. Okay. I can't tell you how this fits in with it. Aside from saying that it's very important. Okay. So this is directly linked to the goals of the Whispering Way in Carrying Crown. But I can't tell you why. I would ruin it for you. But we did head to Nadal. And it was quite the trip. So the goal Arun Vrood gave the party at this point was to find a book. An important book, a book that could bring back Tarbafan. Bring that book and that information into the Whispering Way and basically succeed at their major goal. Their their reason to be, basically, is to bring back Tarbafan. So that's what you guys are tasked with. It's probably the most important goal that the Whispering Way has and signifies your character's importance in that organization. It shows that Aaron Vrood basically has this implicit trust in the four of you that you could carry this out without his interference. Um, and I think that's that's kind of a turning point with him. A lot of the previous stuff that you've been through with Arn Vrood is a lot of like prove yourself prove yourself prove yourself but this was like you've proven yourself I need you to go do this thing that is one of the most important things we can do as a whispering way I need you to go do it and we had an opportunity to hop on this ship we had an opportunity to try and eat the people from Ilmarsh who uh learned a little something or two about because cannibalism is a prevalent theme in these evil interludes. Yeah, you guys really (laughs) took that and ran with it. Yep. Um, And then we got into this forest. 
what was the name of this forest? Was it the Uskwood? Yeah, it's the Uskwood. It's um, well, it, it covers almost half of Nadal. Okay. It's a it's a huge forest. It spans from um, it spans from the mountains that separate Nadal from other countries. So Nadal is kind of encircled by mountains, which I described as you guys kind of went through the gorge between the mountains on the Sulphur River. But it spans from that to almost the middle of the country, and Pangalay is basically in its heart. Yeah. And so we enter these woods, and there's something strange about these woods. It's that there's no sound, right? Yeah. There's no, yeah. There's no life. They're very quiet. It's very different than any woods that you your characters would have experienced in in the rest of Galarian really because a lot of the plants are different it almost seems alien when you're there a lot of the flowers have like white petals and they look like a flower you might have seen before but it's different and a lot of the things have become poisonous or become something else to deal with the lack of sunlight and in this point of the recap uh, before we really hop into our first big battle I want to give you, Griffin, like an opportunity to brag a little bit. You said you were very excited about going to Nadal, and I know you did a lot of prep work. So for the fans back home, you read a lot of stuff for Nadal, and you pulled from a lot of different reference materials. Yeah. To get ready for this evil interlude, what did you do? So... I'm I'm a huge fan of Nadal as a country. I think it's it sparks a different horror interest in me than Ustalov does. So Ustalov is very like monster and gothic oriented. And Nadal is a is a is kind of a it's one of those horror movies where it could happen to you. It's like people have been corrupted and the nation is just has this air about it where it's regular people performing heinous acts and it just it hits all the right buttons as just a a place that evil characters should go if you have your evil characters in your campaign and you're in galarian you should send them to nadal because they might realize that they're not as evil as they thought this place is horrifying and so to prepare myself for this um the the Pathfinder Tales books, Night Glass and Night Blade, are about Nadal and give you a lot, especially Night Glass and the first part of it about Pangalay, which was where you guys were heading initially. Um, I read Nadal Land of Shadows, which is the kind of splat book for Nadal. Uh, I also have a character in our Rise of the Rune Lords campaign who's from Nadal, so I've I've read a lot about Nadal already, and it just, I mean, those of you that, <laughs> and this is going to be like five of you that, that listened to the one time me and Haley on our Drunken Discordally did drunk, and, drunk Galarian history, I did Nadal because it's, it's an area that I'm very comfortable with because I've read a lot about it because I'm really interested in it because it's just, it's such a different place than almost anywhere in Galarian in terms of it being an evil god theocracy. And I just, I really wanted you guys to go there because I thought that it would test you in a way that is not like a trial against paladins or against good people, but like a trial against people that are almost even more evil than you. And I thought that would kind of create some interesting opportunities with your characters. And I, I, I think it succeeded. I, I think, you know, the, the Nadal trip is one of my favorite things we've done so far because it's just... 
it's very intense and visceral and and the torture that they do as a day-to-day thing is completely foreign to outsiders. Let's hop into the very first experience that we have in Nadal, and this is an encounter in the Uskwood. This is a fight between our evil interlude party and a druid that rides a dire bat. This happens in the forest on our way to the castle of the captured son. Mm -hmm. And this was a fun encounter. I mean, tell me I'm wrong, guys, but I had a like... It, it, it didn't feel super dire to me, but I had a lot of fun doing it. There was a lot of battlefield mobility, and I feel like we all got an opportunity to shine. Yeah, it was a blast. I felt like um, being able to do a lot of different stuff with this like one kind of character was cool. Yeah. So let's let's take the battle. You know, let's let's take it through the battle. How how we all performed. But Griffin, just give me a quick setup of who the antagonist was. So the antagonist, and I'm glad you guys really enjoyed kind of the the varied structure of the battle because the antagonist would, was what is called a Shade of the Uskwood, which is a part of a druidic order in the forest, in the forest that you guys are in. And they're all worshippers of Zankathan, and they have actually a varied, like an alternate spell list to druids they specifically can't cast fire spells and they gain a lot of stuff like phantasmal killer isn't usually a druid spell that they were able to cast and they're actually when we think about this they're a CR11 encounter with that dire bat so i gave both the druid and the dire bat four negative levels because i knew you guys were going on into bigger and more difficult things in in an episode so i didn't want to make this like the most challenging encounter in the world while still keeping the the higher level spells the um the battlefield control that a druid has and i thought it really paid off i thought you know splitting the druid and the animal companion while having them you know ride in at first was a good call and um displacement and stuff made it a very role heavy combat and you know, I don't I don't play druids a lot, so I had a lot of fun with you know being able to wild shape, and especially with this druid being able to like wild shape into a plant. He was a shambling mound for a while, and it just it was a lot of fun for me. And I, I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did, because even when I was getting my ass kicked, I was just having a fucking ball being able to play this this druid, this CR eleven druid, this level ten druid that could kind of rain hell on you guys it was really fun well i for one uh hated displacement it was very frustrating um but i also know that uh my cohorts here were very successful against this creature so we had some notable moments right we had nana opal with the negative levels we had dr oh i'm sorry uh mr turner with the uh, touch of idiocy, or at least trying to pull that off. Yeah, that would have been great. Yeah. Guys, talk to me about your tactics in this battle and what you enjoyed about it. Yeah, so the negative levels is from a brand new spell that I like just got. So that was one where like these level four spells really come in handy, which is amazing and fantastic to be able to like use them right away and see the effect of them. Um in addition, like one small thing that I thought was cool that finally came up because we just haven't encountered many animals before. Uh, 
for like the longest time, as part of my character as a whole, I felt as though I wanted to make Nana Opal a very, like a super inviting old woman who's like generally cheery and like welcoming to children, right? That's how you entice children in order to cook them and eat them because that's what I am. I'm a gingerbread witch. But I felt as though like... I needed to have something that set me off on and, and put things on the edge. So when I built my character itself, I made it so that animals felt uncomfortable around me. Like that, I'm literally, it is a drawback. It's called Warded Against Nature. I've had it from the beginning, but we haven't faced animals. We've only been facing like Edelons and we faced, uh, again, non-animal types. But I felt as though it's an amazing picture to have Nana Opal, who's a cheery, bright, like old woman who wants to just give people cookies and all of this. And that's she's that's the picture right in her head. But then at the same time, like animals like creep away and like actively get away from her. It's just like there's something off about this cheery old woman. And that was how I built it. It's it's like uh, the parallel here I think about is Terminators from Terminator. Like I haven't seen it. Oh, how have you not seen you Terminator? Seen the first Terminator? No, I, I've never seen any Terminator. Continue. How do you even understand anything Seymour Wiener says? <laughs> Griffin, because I live with you and you told me what they all mean, but I didn't I don't I have never seen it. I okay. will not be back for you until you watch Terminator One. So <laughs> Terminators look like two, humans. It's good. Oh, two is better than one. I mean, let's be real. Yeah. But, yeah, honestly. But Terminators look like humans, and everybody just sees someone walking around, and they're like, "Oh, cool, a person." But a do- like dogs like bark really hard at them, and that's the same vibe I was getting from you because dogs like know this human-looking person is a machine, so they freak out and. Nana Opal is there's something wrong with her so maybe like the kids and the people see her and are like oh it's that pleasant old woman but uh, an animal that has a more primal instinct freaks out when they see her and that came into came into play this combat right it, yes yeah that's the why dire the, bat. it's the perfect bat, yeah the bat actually didn't come and attack me because like it literally takes a handle animal check for an animal to even want to come near me uh, and I just I, I don't know I wanted to bring that up because it's like it's a feature of my character that I like I built from day one and we've just never had an opportunity to really address it. I was actually really happy with the placement of that because had it been the regular druid, I would have just rolled and I would have got it likely. But because the druid had wild shaped into a shambling mound. It was like, yeah, he's got no control over the... Like, the bat's just going to primal instinct attacks things. He's not going to try and handle animal or wild empathy, this bat. He's just going to keep attacking with, you know, his constrict and stuff with his vines. And so when that happened, I was like, yeah, there's there's not going to be a handle animal check that happens. It's, he's just going to fucking get the fuck away from you. And what about Brooks and Emily? What do you guys think about this encounter? How did you guys react on it? Yeah, so I guess to set the scene of where we were, it was in this relatively dark forest. We had not only like a range to deal with, I guess, on Ed Turner's part. Well, and difficult terrain, right? Difficult mm-hmm. terrain uh, and height on top of all of that. And so another thing that Ed Turner's focus on was during this during the downtime 
was a bit more of an attacking based because he liked the the feeling of when in I believe it was episode seven where he walked into the group of people and just hurt a bunch at one time and do more uh, I guess battlefield tactics and targeted spells. Oh, you mean That's like the big was, channel burst yes, that he had? I think yes. that was in four. Actually. Oh, four. Wow, I am no, very uh, yeah, far it was, it was in the first set of Evil like Interludes. Yeah. Wow, okay. It well. was in the last of the first set of oh, Evil that, Interludes. Okay, so, so that's... Might have been three, uh, actually, yeah, and then three. we did four, five, six, seven, eight. I, I guess I was just remembering the last of uh, of a set. But any, anyways, yes, he was uh, much more focused on the ranged touch spells, the specific target spells, and he was able to absolutely do this here and be able to say this animal is going to have this check at a much different level than a human. Well, that was a great great boon to, uh, to Turner was the, um, you know, between levels, obviously you guys have gotten gold and whatever, but having the uh, extend meta magic rod was great for a character like yours, who has a ton of these spells that are just like touch, save or suck. And you could, boost them to a short range touch or, or save or suck so when you were stuck in the difficult terrain you could just kind of cast it out oh absolutely and you can all imagine a an Ed Turner type of character that just would love to awkwardly like just use be like be like awkwardly handsy and so from <laughs> Okay, well, not necessarily. No, I mean, yeah, yeah. Way, that, that's that, where everyone took like it. Odd, that preacher that is awkwardly handsy. Well, reach okay. out and touch me. Reach out All and right. touch faith. But anyways, yeah, so that's what he had been doing in the off time. And as far as what he was able to do in this battle was perfect because he was able to extend all of the proper spells my big thing with him was the command, uh, or the what was it? Command hostility or murderous yep. command? Murderous command that yeah. he was able to do on the bat to get the bat to go back and attack its master was really cool. Especially like it perfectly timed against Viv's entanglement, so that it it was free of the entanglement and then went the full complement of its movement to attack its master was really cool. Oh yeah, yeah. So, Emily, any, any thoughts about this combat? I had a lot of fun with this combat. I really enjoyed the versatility and being able to use some of my alchemical creations to adapt alchemical to the Alchemical grease? Yes. Come, comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Make, makes Saul greasy. Yeah. <laughs> For four hours. You know, Saul never took a bath, so that's no, still, a still a thing. still a thing. Did not take yeah. a bath. Uh, but yeah, I just really enjoyed being able to uh, have to get a little creative and not just like stand and attack, stand and attack. Like we were moving around the battlefield, conditions were changing, uh, tactics were changing. So I just had a lot of fun with the versatility. Yeah, I felt like you moved more than anybody in the combat because, you know, Saul kind of posted up and tried to four round attack and you were trying to go around, get the flank. Then he got stuck. So you kept going around mm-hmm. to get him get him greased up then you try to get back again then you know it's like Viv was everywhere on the battlefield it felt like yeah she was moving around a lot and that's a really big thing for 
uh, some of the sneak attack with the rogue, like you have to set up the right attack at the right time to get the sneak attack damage because she doesn't do a lot of damage on her own. It's really the sneak attack is where she can shine. Well, speaking of sneak attack, I believe the next episode was called Crit Follows. Which is potentially my favorite name for an episode that we've put out because I'm a huge yes. fan of the movie It Follows. So yes. so just starting off and, and going back to 10 a little bit into 11, you guys had gone to a cabin in the woods, essentially. Also a great movie. Yes, uh, that's why we called this one Stabbing in the Woods. And you you went to this cabin in the woods, you decided to rest there, you realized it was a warded place from the Uskwood Druids, the Shades of the Uskwood. And so you went there, you rested, and Saw encountered, I mean, you all encountered, but Saw was the one that was drawn to it and actually had to you know, actually fail his save and flip through it. This, this um, skin-bound book that led to the spawning of a chitin in the basement. And chitins, for for those listeners who are less versed in Pathfinder or in uh, Hellraiser, are basically the the Cenobites, so the the Hellraiser esque people in Pathfinder. So Griffin, this is where I was a little confused in episode. Like I kept wondering, like, am, am I under some sort of compulsion? Do I have to do some sort of thing? Was it just failing the save that summoned that creature? That was exactly it. It was a DC twenty-five save. Ooh. So you said it deli- deliberately, I, so deliberately high. high yeah. So we would have this encounter. So exactly because I was going to fucking fail. That. Yeah, I knew you would. This yep. was where Ed Turner saved that save. Yep, but the next uh, round of yeah, watch you're like thirty. Was, <laughs> I mean, as I mean, as far as a will save, cleric. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was still pretty high for you, oh, right? For sure. Yeah, oh, like no doubt, no doubt about that. So saw fails, and we all end up down in the basement, all buffed up, ready for a fight. And this one was. If I can quote you, Griffin, the highest CR this party has ever, not only this party, but this network has ever faced. So I'm going to caveat that. And I appreciate you saying that, Steve. So the Shade of the Esquid was a CR 11, but I had purposely taken it down for negative levels and removed some of its best spells. So like had them cast for the day so that it was manageable for your party. This one I didn't modify at all, and it was a CR-10, Sacristan Chitin, which is brutal for a level 7 party. It's an epic encounter, and and it's an encounter after you had already had an encounter. So I knew this was going to be very touch and go. And we go into this basement. We all roll a will save for some sort of sonic attack, and... It's a serious problem right off the rip because Saw survives. He's good. He's good to go. He has no sort besides besides the light concealment. He's regular fighting, but we've also got Ed Turner, who, although he succeeded his saves, he can't see. And then we have two other party members who fail their saves and are confused. Not to mention you're all deaf. Not to mention we're all deaf. 
So there's a lot to talk about in this encounter. And in, I mean, I mean, let's just walk through it, right? So Saul runs up and he starts attacking. Mr. Turner tries to get some sight back so he can be effective. And then Viv and Nana Opal become confused. Well, I think the worst thing was, unfortunately, that Viv had taken the potion of dark vision in her one turn of regular action. And so she could see Nana Opal and proceed to attack. And then we got stuck in the loop. So let's, let's the, talk about the loop a little bit. Yeah, the way that creature worked, guys, was that um, its its scream, which it did, and then it caused darkness in the room, and it deafened all of you, and you all had to make a will save. Was that it? It lasted three rounds, but anybody that failed the will save was confused during that three round duration, and then confused for another D four. And I rolled a three, so you were confused for six total rounds, which was not great for your buddies. It was horrible. It was just Vivian attacking Nana Opal, Nana Opal critting and doing no damage, and then Vivian attacking Nana Opal, and then, uh, again, Nana Opal critting Vivian. (laughs) Yeah, you crit on Viv three times in a row. Yes. Which was insanity. Because she had DR10, so you you couldn't even punch through it on a crit, but... If we had had, by the way, one more round, and Vivian could have full attacked me once again, uh, as she had been doing, I, I would have... I probably would have been reduced down to zero and bleeding out. Well, she never full attacked you. She only no, attacked you but once. Even that was enough to put me down, and like there, I really was one attack away from being... On the ground, bleeding out. Yikes. I, I realized I did a decent amount of damage, but I didn't realize it was that much. Well, again, you're looking at a witch with a D6 hit dice. Oh, yeah, so, that would do it. Yeah, it hurts even at level 7. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're well, dealing with seven or a 6 plus 66 of health. My total health is 53, and I know I got damaged in the previous fight, and I don't think I healed, because I was also down two negative levels. And so I never healed well, going you couldn't to heal the bed. Negative, the negative levels healed over time. Oh, yeah, right? they yeah. healed over time, so they healed over ten, time, but like at some point... I just, I don't think that I intended to heal overnight. I, I, I figured I'd heal in the morning or something. And so I was already down. Yeah, it, it was the negative levels that really hit hard. Well, right they, there. Were, they were done by the time um, this fight happened. They're done, but their HP reduction remains. That's the yes. issue. That's, it's yes. like when you take two negative levels, you're still down 10 HP regardless. You still have to heal that through magical means regardless of right. getting the HP or the levels back. Absolutely, and we just hadn't done that. I was listening back to this episode yesterday, and like I was, for all intents and purposes, for a long time going up against this creature by myself, and then I... I listened back and heard myself talking to you guys just asking you guys to do something because I really did see Saw dying that episode so you guys have heard a lot about how I tailor encounters to my party right I've talked about it a lot I've said it with stuff like the Splatterman fight etc so this was one 
that I also tailored to my party um, in in the way that the gaze was supposed to affect everybody. And I made it so that only outsiders were immune to it because I knew that like Saul was going to be useless in this fight if he if he was basically having to avert his eyes and, and do all of that. And I knew how tough of an encounter it was already off of a second, <laughs> off of an already very difficult encounter. So I added that in, which I think made Saw basically the star of this combat. It made the 1v1 so much more brutal because he could, he was the only one that didn't have to avert his gaze, that could full attack, that could full attack with just the, just the darkness concealment and then eventually with no concealment and could even though he wasn't putting out the damage this thing was like could try and stand against it while he was just hoping his party would come to back him up and it just felt like turns and turns and turns were happening and Saul was just alone like saying things and even while you guys were deaf just like yelling things and nobody could hear him or people were confused and he was just alone in this combat which made it so much more dire for you Steve yeah that was that was tough I really thought my character would go and eventually did go unconscious or actually die Um, I mean Haley and Emily were in this loop lock of attacking each other and by no fault of their own couldn't really do anything Turner I mean had two or three rounds in the combat before he could even really act effectively and um, I really did see the TPK happening where well, you you yeah. were very vocal about it in the episode <laughs> yeah. so, this is Saw's last turn he says yeah, yada yada Oh, he's still alive with one HP. I was oh, I was shocked. I was shocked he did not die, because and and I did say some of the things that I wanted him to say when he was when he was knowingly going to die. Because you know I what thought saved that was your life? It. Literally, this is what saved your life. The fucking natty one. I rolled oh, on yeah. my favorite die. <laughs> on my favorite die, the die that like rolls seventeen and above ninety nine percent of the time. <laughs> rolled a fucking natty one against Ed. On the cleave, and and I could hit Ed on my first attack with the cleave off of a two. Yeah, and Natty One was the only thing that kept me from hitting him, which is why I power attacked and hit Ed. And Natty One kept me from cleaving through to you, which gave you another round, which pissed me the fuck off. But was, but was, I mean, I mean, it was, it was great for Saw. I mean, Saw was just like back in it, kind of. It felt like, yeah. I and he did go down eventually, but at that point, Doctor Viv was able to get up in there and finish the fight. Um, but I, I really, I really genuinely thought that was it. I thought it was going to be a domino effect where if Saw goes down, I mean, full round Turner's done. Like, oh, let's yeah, be real. Yeah. Oh with, yeah, with, I with was down a lot with, with mean, the AC guys, and the hit points. You guys he's lucked down. out that I'm just like tempted by the cleave. It's like, and, oh, I got a monster with fucking cleave. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna do it. Like I could have, I could have attacked three times, but I was like, "Cleave, I never get to do this. I'm just and, gonna keep doing it." And, They're right and, here. And then, if you if you really think about it, with like the fast healing and everything, he walks over to Viv and Nana Opal, and who starts are Cleveland. right Goes exa- to Cleveland. Exactly. Like they don't have any, they don't have any AC or any health, and he's healing himself. Like this very easily could have been a TPK. I had DR and all my health, 
And then I would have been able to attack him if he had attacked me. But but, I but how much would, damage could you re, re, do without setting up the flank? Well, realistically, exactly. realistically, though, she was the most prepared because Dr. Vivian has her main weapon is a plus one adamantine sickle. So she could have bypassed all of that DR. That's she, fair, yeah. The only reason she killed it at the end was because she switched weapons to the silver one. Now, the silver one bypasses this particular thing's DR, but also stops its regeneration. So it couldn't yeah. regenerate when she did that sneak attack damage to it. You killed it by, like, I want to say three HP, and it would have regenerated that the next round if you hadn't hit it with a silver weapon, which stopped its regeneration period and ended it. But we didn't know that because nobody rolled a fucking <laughs> oh. knowledge check. That's Ed was frustrating. Yeah, so frustrating. Nowhere near your fault, Brooks, because that's, you know, we it's play the game. dice, the, man. The, the die rolls, but, like, we didn't uh, know. Oh, yeah. yeah, we put them both, both in the dice jail, and from, I mean, from Ed's perspective, he first, first off, like, protected the the two ladies behind us that were clearly clearly very confused <laughs> clearly and, confused <laughs> and all I, like, I could barely see and from what he could tell was saw going up like just immediately running up to this very very powerful enemy and he can barely see and so he's trying to battle this in his mind of how do I help things when I have a, a character, like two people, or I guess like an enemy and a friend fighting against each other. When they can see each other, I can't see anything for a while. How do I do literally anything? So, I mean, th this was a difficult combat. We... We had a couple folks out of the running for a long time. We finally were able to make it happen. It was the highest CR we've ever faced on this show ever, but we pulled through and the party moved on to our eventual goal. And we were trying to nail these survival checks, right? And we couldn't do it. You fucked that up. Yeah. Fucked it up real bad and ended up getting picked up by agents of the Umbral Court. Yes. And these agents of the Umbral Court were pretty important to us as human beings. Yeah, so <laughs> I I wanted to make it special to the folks in our Return of the Rune Lords campaign and kind of tie the stories together in a way. So the agents of the Umbral Court, that's actually my character in that campaign's backstory. My character, Garrity O'Leary, is an agent of the Umbral Court, or was, and then he joined the um, the group in our Return of the Rune Lords campaign. So that was kind of the through line between the two campaigns, was that at the time, nine years ago, or I guess in in Return of the Rune Lords, probably more like 15, 15, 20, yeah. Yeah, 15 years ago, um, he was an agent of the Umbral Court, and he was tasked with bringing you guys to his mother who is on the umbral court so yeah that was the thing that i did yeah just so, for you guys really so in that moment griffin made uh our rise of the rune lord shattered star return of the rune lords um even our uh one book run of curse of the crimson throne like all canon 
in this world. So that was very fun. But we were able to see that all come together and we moved on to uh, meet our contact in the castle of the captured sun. Ah, uh, Volzani. Yeah, Volzani. Uh, that, that was very cool. I really enjoyed that. And it really gave our party member, Ed Turner, a moment to shine and gave him a uh, an opportunity. An opportunity to do something. I just want to preface this and then I'll let you kind of talk on it, Brooks. Um, I really wanted... You, got, you guys... When we started this evil interlude thing, I got buy-in from all of you, from your characters, that that you wanted to become undead in some way. That was kind of the driving force behind joining the Whispering Way. And I wanted to at least nod to that at this point and give a, you know, concrete, hey, this is how Ed could become undead. Uh, And I thought Ed was the perfect character for it at the time because well mainly because of Grotius right I mean Grotius is a god that is the god of the end times and what better way to serve the god of the end times than to be there for the end times and undeath really gives you that opportunity so I I brought in a character that is very interested in him in for, for that regard and, and interested in maybe extending his life in that way and much like everything me and Brooks do, uh, I, I actually did ask him this time if it was okay that I did that. But um, but it was very much a hey, I wanna I wanna see if I can make Ed a vampire. Is that cool? Yeah, man. But what do you think of that, Brooks? Oh yeah. Uh, normally things is like far as like what we do on the podcast or anywhere else is just off the cuff and this question was absolutely perfect especially like beforehand because exactly what Grotius like or Grotus is the way I like to say it uh, but anyways being undead doesn't change his plans one bit like as it does absolutely like nothing like in fact, it only betters his plan because he can be on the material plane that much longer and drive that much more souls to Phrasma, which is the end goal to have all of the souls go to Phrasma and then Grotus takes over. And so, I mean, absolutely, this fits right in his wheelhouse. As far as a question from you, Griffin, I fucking loved it. I'm glad. I'm glad. And I, I, I wanted to run it by you for this one, especially because I know the way we're taking Ick and I feel like we've gotten comfortable in the way that we interact with Ick. But uh, for Mr. Turner, especially, I, I'm, I'm thinking in a couple of different facets with him when I asked you if, if you'd be OK with him being offered this kind of power, I guess, but also, you know, curse. And so I, I'm glad you went along with it, but had you not, I, I would have I would have taken it in a different direction. Oh, absolutely. I, I loved it, loved it, and there's a real twilight battle within me and I and I'm just a teenage girl <laughs> jumping for joy. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> well you're glad not- you could be my Bella. <laughs> <laughs> well you're not undead yet. And 
as the rest of the party leaves this castle, we go to a tavern called the from moth or like like moth to flames. It's, it's, is it the tavern is just the moth to flame. The moth to flame. Yeah. Uh, and we meet Margaret O'Leary, which is Garrity O'Leary's mother, and she invites us to take part in this ritual to um, inextricably join the Umbral Court and the Whispering Way. And when we do, we all have an opportunity to see a vision of our past and a vision of our fears as our evil parties. Yeah, so leading into this, I had asked everybody about their evil character and what their uh, what their biggest, I guess, evil moment was. And I definitely riffed off of those um, to, to kind of create a cohesive storyline. But, but then I also asked what their greatest fear was. And a lot of you gave me like a word. Like I think, I think uh, Brooks, you gave me Ed's greatest fear was insubordination, and and Steve, you gave me like pain and his parents, <laughs> those yep. kind of things, which really allowed me to just kind of go wild with the. Uh, a lot of people will interpret it as the future, but it's really just a manifestation of your character's greatest fears, so that these joyful things can really extract the true essence of you out. So the joyful things lick each one of us and I want to just go around to the four of us and have the four of us players give a brief summation of what happens and kind of how we came up with it. Right. So does anybody want to go first? Vivian was first to go with the joyful things so I can go first explaining it. Uh, So for, Vivian's uh, kind of like peek into her evil moments. It's a scene as a younger Vivian is still in school and she befriends and courses. <laughs> befriends, very light uh-huh, word. Uh-huh, um, and gains the trust of her TA in a class and uh, then is able to do some of her own extracurricular experiments uh, with him. Uh, so <laughs> she, the essence of this is really that she's um, bet- betraying the trust that she's built with someone. So someone who feels safe and has a connection with her, she twists that and uses it to further her own research for the greater good of... Uh, her quest for knowledge. And then going into her fear, it shifts to more in the future, and she's presenting all of her work in front of a huge body of respected scientists, and she's trying to share the knowledge that she has gained through all of these experiments. And there's the worst naysayer there could be. I absolutely love, but hate that Adivion makes an appearance. So, whose idea was that? That was actually Haley's idea. Well, it was both of ours. Haley said, "Like, because I, I told I, I was struggling realistically with um, with Viv's greatest fear, which was having her work refuted. And I'm like, how do I make that a good a good scene realistically? And Haley was like, "Well, you got to give her an academic rival." 
And I was like, well, you know who was of an age with that? Yeah, and, and Griff then pulled on a Divian, and I, I went further. I was like, it's not just an academic rival. You need to have this be an academic rival that she's had, and she's now presenting her work in front of many, many, many people. And now, when this academic rival likely knew about her work for a very long time and could have confronted her at any point in time, is choosing now in front of everyone to do it. Such an Adivian thing to do. Good scholars <laughs> uh, But yeah, that was Vivian's biggest fear, is that uh, she would be wrong and that her work would not be accepted in like any sort of academic sphere because then all of the sacrifices she made and the sacrifices that she made other people make was all for nothing. It and I think, I think I talked about that, but admittedly, it's hard to understand the joyful things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, they, I mean, they were essentially saying like, oh, she's afraid she did this all for nothing. Yep. At the end, mm-hmm. that was that was essentially it. So if we're gonna go clockwise in this, I guess I'm up next. The two things that I put in front of Griffin were one Saw's worst moment. I with both of these, I kind of struggled because he's a a very, very bad person who has done tons and tons of terrible things. And so I kind of painted a scene a little bit and I I let him run with it, but I painted a scene of people getting thrown in pitch black in the bottom of a ship. The bilges. In the bilges of a sailing ship. They can't see anything and there is a tiger in there hunting them in like waist deep water. And so Griffin kind of ran with that and said, you know, has these prisoners of war almost, these prisoners of the pirate raids would just get thrown into the bilges of this ship. And one by one, they get taken down by this this tiger barbarian man who is living in the bilges. And it's terrifying because it's in complete pitch darkness and you can't see anything. Well, I think the coolest part for me and that you had described to me was that uh, Saw's rage kind of manifests itself outside of him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we explored it in the flashback, but just the the evil that Saw is manifests itself in the rest of the crew and they become, you know, more bloodthirsty and they begin giving him more. and, And at the end, he's still asking for more. I think as the character levels up, that's going to reveal itself more. But um, effectively, just my existence will be detrimental to the people around me. And I think that's kind of what we wanted to play up a little bit in yeah. those scenes. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so that's that's kind of terrifying in its own way. For Saw's greatest fear, I gave Griffin to. I gave him kind of an active and a passive, right? So... Effectively, Saw wants to not be in pain because he's in pain all of the time, transforming into and out of his rage. Um, But he also, whether or not he's aware of it, is scared of his parents. I think we we foreshadowed this a little bit in uh, in episode 10, Mm -hmm. which was really fun. With the phantasmal killer, uh, the thing he's scared most about is that, you know, his he is what he is because of his parents uh his 
his lineage caused him to be a tiefling. His lineage cursed him, um, and his parents wouldn't let him see outside and get acclimated with other people. And he hates him for it, and he killed him, and he's scared that he made the wrong decision. He's scared that he did the wrong thing by slaughtering them. Yeah, I actually had to, uh, for the listeners out there, I had to go back uh, to our first couple of evil interludes to just get the nature of, I really wanted to grab that piece that I think Steve did extraordinarily with Saw that was just kind of like the Saw introducing himself. And it, it talked about, you know, him killing his parents, et cetera. And I wanted to get that kind of flavor in there for for this piece where I where I kind of talked about them being like disemboweled and like you can see the the scratch marks all over them, which was really fun. I, I think yours was the one that listening back to episode twelve really like turned my stomach the most. I think I think more so the just stuck in transformation piece of it. It just really just ugh, it it skeeved me out a little bit when I listened back to myself describing it, which. <laughs> is probably a product of drinking while I describe that. <laughs> it, 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 it hits the right note of if anybody listening is familiar with Animorphs, like if you're just stuck forever, just changing into different forms and your skin is ripping and your nails are falling out and your teeth are falling out and your eyes are exploding as other eyes form behind them. Like, the feeling of never being able to stop changing on a molecular level has to be the greatest pain that a living being can feel. And it's terrifying. Yeah. I think I, I yeah. even described it as like your body was giving up. Like, yeah. it's like you've been changing so much that you can't sustain yourself anymore as despite the regeneration you have or whatever. Like your, 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 your parts are tearing themselves to bits and you just can't feel it anymore because pain is your norm. And that's kind of what I got out of this interaction. And it's uh, scary. And Ed Turner, what you got? (laughs) (laughs) So when you first asked this question and, and I had a little bit of time to think about it, I was hoping everyone else would go on a bit more of a like causing a physical pain type of type of evil while I could go in a more of a like society evil type oh, of yours, thing. Well, yours was a societal evil. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, like very manipulation of of people and the the fears and and worries that everyday people have in the Pathfinder society, and so with that he came to this town befriended the the lieutenant guard that really d- didn't feel like he got his share of uh, of the good graces from the town and used that to push him to the top while he took down all of his rivals to make the worst person possible rise to the top while he blackmailed that person or like that lieutenant into 
having the whole town do whatever he liked. I wanted to make that a lot more visceral because I loved your evil, but your evil is such a, like, I would love to do a saga on Ed Turner's evil. And so to make it a little bit like more radio appropriate, I had you do the like touch of madness right mm-hmm. in the debate because I just felt like that's something Ed would do. Just like make somebody ruin somebody right as they're about to have their greatest shining moment. Oh yeah. I mean, just look at Viv's story. It was like eerily similar in their at the almost biggest stage that they could be. And then having everything crumble down from the highest point. And so it, I, I loved it. Loved it, loved it. And as far as his his fear... Insubordination, baby. <laughs> the, 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 the simplest things and just, I mean, as a cult leader, having somebody else even, even rival him was awful. Yeah, it's, it's a weird form of creepy to to be manipulating somebody who you know can't lead a group of people into leading a group of people because you know he's going to lead them to ruin mm-hmm. that was that was a, a a weirdly disgusting feeling i had after listening to that because you you were setting up a puppet and it was gross i feel like it's almost relatable I mean, it's like it's something that like you hear about. Yeah, it's it's and very it's it's, scary. It's very Manchurian candidate, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I thought it was uh, awesome how the insubordination that the scene that like Griff made, right, was very. It was it was Julius Caesar esque, and it was amazing. To I'm glad you that. think that because yeah. that's exactly what I based it off of was the the man at the pinnacle, the man at the top just being taken down by all of his insubordinates because I felt like when when Brooks gave me the insubordination as his biggest fear I was like I don't know any worse insubordination than Julius Caesar so I'm Mm -hmm. gonna make it like this and and just to drive the point home I brought Dr. Viv into the scene to drive the last blade into him because it's the last person that Mr. Turner would suspect would betray him that way Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I loved the whole thing. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And if there's one person who really despises insubordination, it's our very last, very favored Nana Opal, who really doesn't like if kids act up. (laughs) It's not (laughs) polite. So we've learned. It's not polite. So we have a couple different uh, visages, right? Nana Opal, her greatest fear, and Nana Opal in her past. Let's talk about it. Yeah, so within Nana Opal's past, um, so she is, she is a changeling, and I, I I don't know, the Pathfinder definition of how changelings come to be is not uh, exactly as clear as many books I've read, which is where basically a baby gets swapped out. Well, Opal's past, right? She got swapped out as a baby. Her mother had died, or the mother of the actual child she got swapped out with died. And she's been raised by the single father. At 16, she got the calling. Like, the changelings in Pathfinder world get a calling. Hers was from Tarvafan, though. <laughs> um, and that was her calling. So on her 16th birthday, she goes in, and um, Griffin 
part of part of this when I sent him because I sent him a whole scene and this was he, he yeah, followed yeah it. it was great it was great he followed it really true to it but the one thing that uh, we left out just because he was he had to do it all and it wasn't uh, like there it was no way to have me kind of break in and then go back and forth uh, is I actually in reality she she basically sung happy birthday to herself while uh, tearing down her father. Um, because she knew she was in now a very good state. Um, and so she did all of that, killed her father, made sure that she kept everything that could be valuable just because she, she knows the value of, of uh, different items within a person. Um, it just came naturally to her. She then, um, you know, goes through it, and, and it's all about respect with her. Um, there's something about respect that is required. Yeah, she's and, like a mob boss. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta have that kind of respect. Exactly. There's just this respect, and, like, good manners should exist at all times in her head, whether that's required or, or, like, whether other people feel that way or not, good manners need to exist. And so as these children, like those two that were unaccompanied by their parents, one, that little girl was so... Awfully impolite. <laughs> um, yeah, God forbid. God forbid. I'll take cookies. She didn't ask, nor did she say please. Um, anyways, with that in mind, it's it's not about okay. We should torture now the child that act up. It's how do we make sure that this child who acted up never does that again? Um, By torturing the good one. Yeah. Exactly. In front of the other one. Makes sense. So that was like the day of her calling and that was I don't I, don't, I couldn't I felt like that was one of the most evil things that Nanopa may have done, but at the same time, it was the very first instance of evil. Like that was her first day of evil as well, which I think was interesting as well. I feel like that makes it the most poignant though. I think that's yeah. that's where it really like killing your own father and that kind of thing is very poignant even if she's done way worse things to children. It just seems like that day was a very big switch with her. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Her greatest fear was being um well being turned down by Tarbafan, so uh, it wasn't as much a scene as it was me berating her as Tarbafan, which was kind of fun. Yeah, and you've now instilled a secondary huge fear into Nana Opal, who will want to address this. Her now secondary fear because of this instance, and it will change the way that she is as a person. Because how do you go through this without this changing you as a person? That's what I gave you that warning before you went into it. It's not. It's it's it changed her now forever. Because now she's afraid of something she's never been afraid of, which is getting old. She's never once been afraid of being old. And she is, is old, though. But she is fucking and, old. And now she's <laughs> fucking terrified. So. Well, there are ways to get not old. They're not good people ways, but there's ways. Yeah, and at this point, like, this is now a new goal she has. She's got to fix this. Ooh, well, yeah. that's all. That's all very fun, and uh, I'm glad we enjoyed this little fucked up escapade with each other. But I offered you all an option to receive Zonkathan's blessing, and only one of you took me up on it. And that was Doctor Viv. 
What was uh, was going through your head? I think I, I had told you guys off air uh, there's a 25% chance your character dies doing this. That gave me pause for consideration. I was glad I had a little bit of time to think about it. But after being in Nadal and experiencing or having Vivian experience that culture and the the pain that was inflicted and the knowledge that they had that she was trying to gain and just them talking through their order and their society and then what she could gain from being blessed by uh, Zonkathon. It just fit so well with everything that Vivian has done and what she is going to do. It just made so much sense that I was willing to have her kind of go out on a little bit of a limb and go through this ritual. Uh, It just, it seemed to fit so perfectly. So behind the curtain, the only ones I even expected to accept were Viv and Saw. And I was pretty sure about Viv because Zankathan aligns almost directly with with what her character is about and if she could gain the benefits of being able to inflict pain in a way that doesn't cause death, I think that would be a big boon for her character, but with Saw, I thought maybe he might take the blessing because it is the Lord of Pain and he is blessed with, well, not blessed, but in Zankathan's mind, blessed with this almost unending pain, and so him to kind of commune with the Midnight Lord and, and accept this pain might have been a might have been a way you could have taken your character. Now I I was never I mean you guys I sprung this on you, right? I sp- I sprung this mm-hmm. entire ritual on you For guys sure. when when we did the the end of the evil interlude. So it was kind of like a you know I can take all, I can take none. I just kind of want to see. My thoughts on the matter were that Saw's in pain all the time. His goal is to not be in pain. So the the reason he came to Ustalav, the reason he, you know, talked to the the old woman at Moon Isle is that he wanted to become undead and not feel pain anymore. He doesn't want someone, whether that is mortal or immortal, to profit off his pain right he doesn't he doesn't want a god to to like to get some sort of glory or ecstasy because he's in pain he just wants to not be in pain yeah and i i I considered that i just was wondering if saul would take a take a turn after living through these four episodes, so I wasn't sure. I knew yeah. I knew Ed probably wouldn't because that would remove all of his abilities as a cleric. I thought, uh, you know, Nana was a soft maybe because, again, she doesn't really worship a god, but she's all about Tarbafan, and and the undeath thing doesn't exactly equate to the pain thing. But the the Viv connection was so strong, I, I wanted to have this in there because I, in my mind, 90% you were going to say yes to this. Once I gave it about just a few seconds of thought, it just, 
it seemed perfect and great development for Vivian to grow and get stronger, which personally I'm so excited about to see like what she can do as she grows and these uh, blessings grow with her. But on the other side, I'm also terrified if our campaign, our good campaign, ever, mostly good, uh, ever comes in contact <laughs> Ever with her. comes or comes into contact in a couple of episodes. Yeah, yeah. I By accepting these blessings, I feel like I've made it harder on us. Oh, you certainly have. That's what I was kind of counting on. Um, the, the thing is, and the, the really tough thing for me... I think you get this a lot when you're running a bunch of tandem campaigns in kind of parallel timelines that aren't necessarily at the same point, was that I was very in my gut worried I was going to roll below a 25 and have to, like, figure out how Viv's back. Because, <laughs> because that, was, that was a distinct possibility. And, you know, you, I literally have my dice right here in front of you. Like, you could have seen me mm-hmm. and called my shit on it. So, and I was expecting you to, because I was expecting to have to, you know, if that happened, have to figure something out. But it was a little stressful for me because Viv is the only character from the evil interlude that we've actually brought into the campaign. Much like when I power attacked you with the bat in episode 10, it's like, yeah, that's a worry for me that I, uh, you know, I, I'm not worried that I bring you back as undead, but it's a worry for me as to the how. Oh, yeah. I also had, uh, through some of our fights, especially uh, in that last fight when it was getting really dire, I did kind of go through an escape plan for Vivian because I was like, she, story-wise, has to come back. Oh, I'm so glad I need you got my back. I'm glad you got my back. <laughs> No, it's cool. I'm just holding it down here. One be one in the Crichton, and uh, you're planning your escape plan. That's cool, too. <laughs> yeah. um, but guys, it's getting a little late. Yeah, we got to get some questions in, dude. And the listeners have questions for us. And I, because I received a lot of Halloween-themed listener questions, having you guys on the show... Let's get out. Let's let's get a bunch of them gone, right? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I think a lot of them were targeted at all of us too. So, yeah. so our first one comes from Twisted Enigma. He says, "If the HLP crew were all serial killers, what would their gimmicks be? Also, who would uh, who from the crew would last the longest? As like five serial killers? Yeah, I guess. I so. guess yeah. So if we all killed people, who who could kill the most people?" <laughs> Nice. I guess that's kind of how I'm interpreting <laughs> is it. Is it who would kill the most or who would get caught first? Uh, Very different. Well, I, I mean, it's who would get caught who last. Who would get caught last. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. So, so, right. So let's just say who could get caught last. I think I would kill people. Um, my calling card would be I would drown them in cans of hams. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> quite the calling card. Yeah. So uh, all they have to do is track hams purchases across the state. Pretty much. So I don't think I would make it the longest, but I would kill probably four to five people by drowning them in hams. Brooks, what you got? Oof. This was honestly a very, very hard question for me. I would like to think... My gimmick would be, uh, well, killing housewives and then going back to... My gimmick would then be <laughs> going uh, going to the husbands and be like, oh, man, well, 
Now I guess we can date. It's totally cool. Like, Am I married to you in this <laughs> what the hell? fictional universe? This is, a, this is a strange turn of events. This is a very strange universe, and that it absolutely does not have to be this universe. Okay. <laughs> dating widows? Is a couple of dating no, husband like widows. The husband, oh, the male I'll be like, widows. Oh, I'll be like, more of, more of on like a joking terms of like, oh man, now you're single. Do you Guess kill them like, too then, or do you just you date them for as long as it takes? Um, I said nothing about actually dating them. You guys just all assumed. Oh, that. so you were just like, but I'm like, joking uh, and saying, oh, we should date like, now, oh, just rubbing salt in the wound. Yeah, kind of like that. All right, all right, Haley, what you got? <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest. I didn't understand what a gimmick was. I had to look this up. Classic. I don't know. I feel I feel like it would be something weird. Like maybe maybe I take fingernails or something. I don't know. Oh, I feel like you would definitely push people into the machinery at your no. plan. <laughs> um, no, I'd never do that. Oh uh, you're a fucking idiot. Boop. No, because I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want it to be something that's actually traceable. So you never want to take anything, and you don't want to leave stuff that's traceable and has like fingerprints on it, right? You don't want that. That's not how you survive as a serial killer. And it needs we to be have safety equipment. All right, fair. We have fair. safety equipment that definitely prevented this. All right, Emily. I believe if I was a serial killer, my gimmick would be poisoning food. Seriously, Emily, I definitely thought you'd be like knitting needles left somewhere. So that was my like first idea was like my strangulation cut cut. by yarn or something. Strangulation like, by yarn. <laughs> I know so much more about food and uh, what could go into it that could hurt someone and eventually kill them. So I was like, I have more knowledge on that. So I'm going to go with poisoning food. I think that Haley or I would last the longest because we're female, so we would be... Uh, less likely suspects. I think Haley would maybe survive a little bit longer because you have access to a pretty nice pond that I feel like you could hide bodies in and um, they would never come up. Hello, I have access. But you're well. not female. See, yeah, you're, no, and- you're saying this based off of gender, but you haven't heard everybody's story yet. Yeah, that is true. I do think a good gimmick would have been to stick a knitting needle through everyone's eye. Um, by the way, just that was one I thought of, but that would be a good one. <laughs> Continue. That's nice. I'm, nice. I'm glad. So... Mine would be very much in the vein of Hannibal Lecter in that uh, the victims I kill, I would then smoke on my smoker and eat. And by virtue of that, I would dispose of most of the fingerprints and and bodies, etc. Aside from the bones, which I would then kind of get rid of in acid. Uh, I think or ground down into flour and make cookies. Oh no, no, I, I don't go that far. <laughs> But I think, you know, that's an easy way. Like, it's like, oh, so I'm smoking. It smells good. Like, humans are known as long pork. It's like, I'm just smoking a pork butt. Yeah. Uh, all right. To wrap this question up, I think uh, uh, Emily's a terrifying human being who would probably uh, end up killing me. Realistically. <laughs> like Realistically. <laughs> oh, no. All right. So... Next question comes from Lord Deathquake. He's, he asks for the most horrifying TTRPG experience aside from the one time Brooks had a terrible Fu Manchu, which was terrifying. Uh, my, my most terrifying TTRPG experience, and I'm going to go exclusive of this podcast because it is a horror blended podcast, right? 
in our Rise of the Rune Lords campaign, I can't remember if it was late book five or early book six, we had this really cool scene where we were in this uh, weird cabin that was being assaulted by a Wendigo. Oh, I knew exactly oh, what you were talking yeah. about. You said it. Oh, I've read was, that part. It was super creepy, and a couple of our characters died in that fight, but it was... Uh, Tim did a really good job of setting the scene of this this haunted cabin. The dwarfs were like mining or something, and they couldn't stop mining in the afterlife. And um, it was great. He did he did a fantastic job. It was fucking scary. A Wendigo is a terrifying. Yeah, my enemy, favorite by the way. monster. We'll, we'll do it. Oh, yeah. monster. My, my favorite monster. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it with you guys on. I want all three yeah. of you on that have experienced that fight at least. Yeah. From from being from Minnesota, absolutely. Yeah, Brooks was your scariest. You know. Um, Probably, I mean, I pretty much had like no doubt about this was my first time ever playing a TTRPG, like playing Pathfinder. It was really kind of like kind of scary to be like, I guess, building a character and then throwing it into like very unknown situations and how would I actually be this character? So scary on a personal level. Yeah. Um, but as far as it being actually scary, actually scary, no, it just built that up in my mind and it turned out to be very, very fun. So that was that. Cool. Haley, what you got? I think, uh, the best experiences I've had with like a horror or, or fear type one. It's not that I was afraid during it. It was more the setup. It was very cool. Griff put, uh, he, he was running uh, a game for us, and he put candles everywhere and turned off the lights, and we were just lit by candles, and he would go from person to person, like, whisper something kind of loud in your ear, and, like, all the way around the table again and again, and it was a really, really cool experience to have, um, and it was a very good way of portraying like horror while actually doing the TTRPG experience itself, like playing TTRPG and having like a horror setting in real life. I definitely agree with Steve that Wendigo fight was terrifying and the buildup where it's like in your dreams. And so, you know, it's coming uh, was super creepy just playing through it. Uh, another one, which I think ties in with what Haley was saying, but uh, with our Rise of the Rune Lords going through the Foxglove Manor, mm. uh, kind of earlier on in the book, it wasn't so much like horrifying, like I'm not enjoying this or I'm like super creeped out. It was more of like a good spooky movie where like there are these different haunts and we're trying to uh, solve like what went wrong in this house. And I love that aspect of Pathfinder, like solving something, but it's also creepy uh, throughout the whole And our first time... Like experiencing haunts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so where I want to go is it, I'm going to explain where Haley was coming from first and then I'm going to go into my own. But uh, that's how I ran Foxglove Manor. That's what you're describing. I ran in full candlelight in initiative order, uh, forcing people to split themselves off into haunts. And I thought that was one of the best ways to actually run a haunted house that has all these haunts. Like it's fucking lame to have everybody experience the haunt at the same time. You get to save somebody. Fuck that. I, I disagree. 
I heartily disagree with that. I think I think you should experience it one by one like you would in a horror movie. And that's what I did, and that's what they experienced, and I think that made it that much more poignant. In terms of what I'm actually afraid of and what has happened in stuff I've, I've, I've played in, um, our friend Eric ran us through Skulls and Shackles, and there was actually a scenario where uh, our characters were dominated to continue fighting an illusory image underwater. And while my character was an undying and so could breathe underwater, other characters were not. And it was just this scenario where, like, you're compelled to fight this thing underwater and you're running out of air and you can't fight the feeling to fight this thing and you can't fight it over your own survival instinct to get up and get some air. And that's terrifying to me. Like, just the stuck underwater like trapped under ice type feel is ugh. it's not 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 my cup of tea all right well we got a couple more questions left to go this this second to last one comes from bp hashtag florida man fucks back um this is whose irrational fear would make the weirdest horror movie monster my irrational fear is spiders so like that's not the worst. Yeah, I mean, there's a monster. lot of horror yeah. movies about that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. So I want to hear what everybody else has. See which is the worst. Hairballs. Oh, oh my god, that's a great one. Oh boy. Furbies, the reckoning. Furbies. Okay. <laughs> Just no, no. I mean, like from the hairball. Oh no, like, your, yours is furbies now. Is, yours is furbies okay, now. <laughs> fine. <laughs> hate it. Hate them. Hate them. Hate them. Like hair slash fur and food. At like the drain catches or whatever in garbage cans. I hate it. I hate yeah, it. The I drain catches, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, this is like a, a fear that's mostly in the back of my head, but I have like a reoccurring dream of when uh, my eyes are open, there's no one there, but when my eyes are closed, n- everyone is there and active and doing stuff. And every time you open your eyes, you're still not like. You still don't see anyone. So it's uh, like that is like a fear like that. I wake up one day and like everyone's gone. But then like I'm closing my eyes or taking a nap or something. And everyone's moved around and everything's moved. And then you wake up again and no one's there. That could be a really fun horror movie. All right. Well, I think my most irrational fear would be. Uh, I guess kind of tied to Vivian's uh, imposter syndrome. So like someone's going to figure out that I'm not as smart as everybody thinks that I am. Wouldn't be a great uh, horror movie. No. <laughs> no, would be pretty bad. Well, unless you then take revenge, in which case that's a great horror movie. Yeah. I, I'm going to well, say uh, because you and Brooks are married, um, the movie is you're worried that people are going to find out that you're actually a hairball. <laughs> Nice oh, that one. would be fun. And that is the uh, truly horrific horror movie. So I wouldn't say mine is entirely irrational because it's been said to happen to people, but it does skeeve me out more than a lot of things. Um, and and it's kind of the reason why I get skeeved out, especially by Viv, is that uh, the thought of having surgery while you're awake terrifies me. Uh, I've had surgery a lot. Like I've had my appendix removed and my tonsils removed and I had surgery on my hand to get my bones fixed and that kind of shit. So I've had, I've had a lot of surgeries and nothing has gone bad. 
and my mom's even an anesthet like a nurse anesthetist. <laughs> like she deals with it, which is probably why I've had the the thought of it in my head so often. But just the fear of being awake while that's happening and having nothing like no ability to say that it's happening to you and that you're feeling everything that's happening is like the scariest thing in my mind. And I think they've done a horror movie about that. Uh, I think there's one it's called like a wake or something that that is is basically that it's somebody it's like following somebody that's awake during surgery. And it's just like. Ooh, oh, it it skews me out. That's why that's why Viv skews me out so much when she does this stuff. It's like it, it bugs me on a visceral level, which is why I'm so great at describing it. Oh. <laughs> well, that brings us to our last question, and this is probably the most important question that we're going to cover tonight. This comes from the young Squire Petty Pants. Is cannibalism wrong? And uh, my answer is just depends what party you're talking to. Well, it depends if we're talking about <laughs> yeah. a party or talking about real life. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I got. What do you guys think? I was going the same direction as you. I was going to say whatever party you're talking to. Yeah, it depends who you talk to. Because Nanopa loves cannibalism. I think, personally, not worth the risk of disease. Too many human diseases yeah, that can spread. Yeah, human disease. Nope. <sighs> I mean, I, I... From a fantasy standpoint... Absolutely not. Is cannibalism wrong? No. Uh, realistically, yeah, yeah. I think it's the def- definition of cannibalism in the setting. If if we're going fantasy, it's really okay. Is cannibalism a human eating another human, or is it a human eating another sentient thing? Or where do you draw the line? Like, I I was. And I'm air quoting this gang, blessed by GMing Haley as a lizard folk who ate people all the fucking time. And it was kind of like, well, is that cannibalism? Well, I don't know. She's not eating another lizard folk, but she's eating another sentient thing. So kind of, it depends on your morals. And I think it's almost written in the fantasy that it happens. So in fantasy, uh, you're going to be evil. Like I'm going to shift your alignment to evil, just like I did with hers. If you do it, but I don't have any qualms with GMing an evil party. Obviously, I feel like if I were hiking and I got a quarter mile deep into the woods and twisted my ankle and couldn't go any further, a and- quarter mile, a quarter mile, <laughs> a quarter and, uh- mile. Deep into the woods. <laughs> And got really and, and got really hungry. <laughs> and got really hungry. I would eat the person I'm with. So uh, no, I don't think her cannibalism was wrong. Well, I mean, that's that is survival, survival of fittest. Like that, that's not even of the fittest. That is like on the very like. It's like I can still see the road. Yeah, yeah I, I can still see the road. <laughs> survival of the fittest. Fuck it, we're doing it. Sorry, yeah. I'm hungry. Yeah. Plane crash, like up in like the Andes, and you have to eat oh, somebody man, that, to like live another day while like the rescue crew, like crew. Brooks, the oxygen masks wouldn't have even dropped before I started eating people. <laughs> <laughs> All good right, no, good to know. Ladies. Wow. Yep. All right. Well, I'm gonna be honest with you, folks. So I, I feel like you deserve that from me. 
So keeping that all in mind, I think it's about time to wrap it up tonight. I had a lot of fun chatting with you guys about the evil interlude and where we're going and all of the crazy nonsense that we're getting into. Um, we got more inner evil interludes headed your way soon, and I hope you guys enjoy them as much as we did. So without any further ado, anybody else on this show want to say goodbye to the people at home? I only got one thing to say, Steve. Okay. And that's, uh, I'm going to need you guys to finish your drinks, because we'll see you in two weeks. Later. Later.